Rachel Elliott. Welcome to Sound It Out. This radio show chronicles the work of the International Institute for Critical Studies in Improvisation. A central hypothesis of the Institute is that music is one of the key ways in which human beings communicate with each other, and that the openness and attentiveness that improvised music in particular requires fosters capacities for listening across difference and the creation of new forms of shared meaning. The idea is that all of this contributes to participatory democratic values of inclusiveness, respect, and meaningful exchange. This July, I had the privilege of traveling to the most easternly province of Canada, to Labrador and Newfoundland, in order to attend a summer school about improvised music at Memorial University. The school was attended by graduate students from all over the world, each bringing their own questions, insights, talents, and personal quirkiness to the table. The theme of the course was arts-based methodologies and where improvised music fits in with that. What you will hear in the coming hour stems from the conversations that I had during those two weeks in St. John's in what seemed not a little like a musical summer camp for adults. We all shared a common lodging on the fifth floor of the new residence dormitories and spent our days in class discussion, making music together, and attending music performances as part of the sound symposium that was going on in St. John's at the same time. We were all in one way or another studying live performance and the moment of coming together that that entails. But not everyone was a seasoned performer themselves. We were, however, all encouraged to try our hand at experimenting with sound in a collective situation. This meant listening attentively and attempting to respond in some way, the premise being that no sounds are out of bounds. The point was to learn this style of interaction and to become comfortable with the range of sounds that we can make with instruments, our bodies, or everyday objects. Doing this meant facing our self-consciousness about doing something wrong, our shyness about taking up space and being heard. It was a personal as well as collective journey for many of us. What is to come is organized around a recording of the performance that we eventually did together as part of the Sound Symposium. The Sound Symposium is an experimental music festival that happens in St. John's every second year. It's been going on for decades, and it originally started with the theme of place as a rallying point, exploring how the soundscape and sonic properties of St. John's geographical features can inform our musical sensibilities. It expanded over the years to include all variety of sound experiments, and even beyond sound. This year's program, for example, included Boreal Breaths and Steps, a poetry and dance collaboration with the Boreal Forest. The performance that we did on the final day of the symposium had a format that we came up with together and that combined lead improvising with free improvising, where there are no instructions whatsoever, pre-composed poetry, field recordings, and interviews, all more or less arranged by us during the performance itself. This show features that performance, interspersed with discussions I had with the other members of the summer school. 
These conversations center around the themes of self-consciousness and hesitancy in improvising and the value of overcoming this hesitancy. What's up? What's up? What's up? The first thing that you're going to hear is a brief interview with one of the founders of the Sound Symposium, Kathy Wary. Here, George Blake has just asked Kathy how the Sound Symposium manages so well to bring out a sense of place. We don't have to bring out the place for the symposium. Okay. Yeah, the, the place does it for itself. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have this anywhere but here. Yeah. This is, this is home, and the original concept of Sound Symposium was to have a natural audio laboratory of wind, water, fish, uh, all of the things that existed back in the early, late 70s and early 80s. Things have changed a lot, but we still uh, love, the love of nature was a strong part of it. A strong part of it, when you put a gong down in a pond and you ding it, you get a wonderful wow sound, like you do with a little cymbal in a bucket of water, but, but re- recording bird sounds, seabird sounds, waves, rocks, all of the sound of washing water on rocks, that kind of thing. It's natural, and that's, that's where Don was, because he was also very much an environmentalist, as well as a musician and visual artist. So um, all those things came together with this group, Fusion, and that, that's the root of it, the natural part of it. All of the uh, experimental, exotic, and uh, improvisational things found their way up out of that. So the earth is where we started. Does that help? That's wonderful. Okay. Can I ask a quick follow-up question? Mm-hmm. Do you think that sound is a better medium for expressing um, a sense of place than, say, visual arts or other sorts of um, artistic forms? No. No, I think they all go together. We, don't, we try not to separate them out. In fact, I've found that in later years, people have tended to pull more into their little private pockets, and I find that really unfortunate. But Sound Symposium is about continually putting them into the big soup pot and stirring. You know, you you want people to try everything and see how that enriches what you are doing. We ask you how sound affects you and to react to that, but that doesn't mean we're trying to exclude anything at all. Thank you.
such a great, fantastic biannual festival. Right? It's not every year, it's every two years. And it, in my experience, um, because I grew up in the city, I went to the Sound Symposium events at different times in my life. <laughs> and that's one thing I can absolutely say about the Sound Symposium is that um, I try to go in without any preconceived notions of what I'm about to see, but it's I always leave surprised. Hey, I think we're meeting Colleen Quigley here. George Blake and I paid a little visit to the Sound Symposium archive to see if we could find out more about what had gone on here year after year. It turned out that the archive was mostly a collection of posters, but we had a little chat with the archivist Colleen Quigley anyway. Hi, I'm Rachel. Lovely to meet nice you, Rachel. To meet you, and I hear you're both looking for sound symposium related material. Yeah. We're actually more on a meta mission. We're thinking okay. of talking to you about the material. Oh, even better, yeah. because I was like, the material. Come sit down. Let's have this I think it's hard to distinguish memory from place and memory from time. Um, the archive is really kind of what's the traces of what are left behind, opposed to um, a replication of the experience. Uh, kind of what I say as an archivist is that it's kind of like maps. Every map you're going to lose something because you're going to lose detail. Same with an archival collection. The poster only gives you so much of the experience. It doesn't give you the, the contact of being there. Yes, I am of the firm belief that I don't make memories here in the archive. That's sometimes a trope that is used a lot about the memory making. No, memory itself is, is such a volatile term. What's a false memory? What's a true memory? What's experience? What, all of those questions are very philosophical. Um, but things that we deal with every single day, does this actually reflect what happened? And one of the, some of the main issues you deal with in archives is, is it an authentic document? So is it plagiarized? What's real? Yeah. It's an echo. And yeah. sometimes the typos are what are actually become, become history sometimes, mm. when in fact, no, the event, the poster was wrong. We all know the poster was wrong. The poster had the wrong date. We all know we went to the right place. But that's what becomes because that's a whole bias towards the text versus the oral. And when you pulled up this poster, yes. you had this great line that I think was, that's not what I thought it was, or it's never what yes. I thought it was. Could you yes, explain any that? sense. And for me, that poster is a surprise because the idea of using the visual sound waves for an auditory experience is kind of surprising, but very poignant. So I guess that's kind of that's kind of what I thought of when I thought of that poster. It reflects a lot more than just sounds. recording of the Harbor Symphony. Every day at noon during the festival, the ships docked in St. John's Harbor would play a piece of music using their horns. The daily symphony lasted about 20 minutes and was audible throughout the downtown and even further than that. I heard it one day from the lawn of the university, which is about three kilometers from the harbor.
If you've ever been to St. John's, you will know that the geography surrounding the harbor is that of sharply sloping hills, which a visit to Signal Hill will tell you makes St. John's, tactically speaking, one of the most protected harbors in the world. And this was used to great advantage during World War II. features of the landscape also make the harbor an especially resonant location, and if you listen closely to the sound of the horns, you will hear them repeat as they echo through these hills that are so thick with history. Let's now turn to the performance that we music campers did on the final day of the festival. was something that we came up with together. sorts of things would happen, in what sequence, but the actual content of what we did was improvised. The sound that you will hear is the result of the musical dialogue we were having with each other on stage. The performance began with some sound collages made in live time on stage by the facilitator of our group, music professor Jesse Stewart of Carleton University. He used a special instrument called the reactable, which is a very intuitive, tactile unit that you can use to mix pre-recorded sounds together and manipulate and modify them to produce interesting effects. <laughs> device, uh, what you are listening to is that beginning, where clips from the Harbor Symphony are spliced together with interviews we did with people listening to the Harbor Symphony whether on their lunch break or just walking down the street. As you may be 
yourself observing, the Harbor Symphony is a very loud and obdurate sequence of sounds, and not everybody likes hearing them during the middle of the day. But this is one of the ways that the Sound Symposium really entrenches itself in the local memory, I would say, if the sounds of the horns are taking over the city every two years for a week or two. It would really affect your memories of that summer, wouldn't it? reflects a change in technique. We are now involved in what's called sound painting. It does have a leader. In this case, the leader is Anders Eskinson. Anders is a PhD student at the Aarhus University in Denmark. I've gotten to know you here through the um, International Institute for Critical Studies and Frisation. And one of the things I've got to know about you is that you have an interest in this thing called sound painting. Yes, definitely. Uh, how would you describe what sound painting is? Well, it's a gesture-based system for musical communication, really, between a conductor, also known as a sound painter in this system, and an ensemble. Uh, okay. And um, do you know anything about the history of the development of yeah, sure. Um, I think it was the basics of it was was developed in the 1980s by Walter Thompson, American, I think New York-based at the time uh, composer, um, who was part of a generation of uh, other musicians and painters that were working with, you know, intuitive and, and improvised ways of, of making music and similar gesture-based systems have been developed by other people uh, which Morris has a similar system called conduction um, and a lot of other people have been, been working in that area but sound painting has become very sort of 
come to be used by a lot of people around the world, not least Denmark, where I'm from. Um, and it, they, I think they meet every year, Walter Thompson and a lot of practitioners in Paris. Yes, the uh, sound painting think tank, uh, where they discuss uh, how they develop uh, new science. And, and so there's uh, some coordination going on um, in this community. Okay. Um, you use the words um, intuitive and improvised. Um, why are those values important? I mean, I, I can, of course, speak for Walter Thompson. Mm -hmm. uh, for the Danish musicians and music teachers that I've been talking a bit with, um, yeah, it, 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 it can be used for them as a tool to heighten sensitivity to others in the ensemble. Mm -hmm. Because you, with a system, what what it kind of forces you to do is to be attentive to not least the gestures that the conductor is making because that's what it's all about and to the others in the ensemble because sometimes you're given a gesture that, that requires you to coordinate things um, and maybe you're sort of forced to reflect on that um, or to be attentive to it. for icy image. In addition to sound painting, there is another style of leading vocal improvising that we made use of in the performance. It is called unpitched singing. And it's similar to sound painting in that the singers would respond vocally to the gestures being made by the conductor. This unpitched singing style is one used by postdoctoral researcher Chris Tinelli. Oh, I'm Chris Tinelli. For Chris, Expanding the repertoire of sounds that we can make with our voices is not just about expanding our imagination. It's also about resisting something that he calls voice policing. Voice policing is what happens to you when you're a child and thereafter. It's the way you're shamed and looked down upon if you make sounds with your voice that are outside the acceptable range. You may be feeling this process working through you right now as you listen to the vocal experiments in our performance. I spoke with Chris Tinelli about the relationship between improvising and voice policing. People are generally um, shy to use their voice in an open, free way. Um, so you've got to find strategies to invite them into that in a way that makes them comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of strategies do you use to uh, invite people? 
um, I'm, I'm just in a way, you know, starting to develop uh, strategies for this. When Phil Minton came to Guelph, his laughing is, <laughs> that, yeah. that works the best. Yeah. So, you know, I stole that and I'm going to continue to, to use that um, because that is perhaps the most kind of like odd um, it, it, sound that we do make in our day-to-day lives where we don't feel self-conscious about it. We all feel pretty comfortable laughing, although some people probably don't. Some people cover them their mouth when they laugh or that sort of thing. Um, but laughter, we often find ourselves sort of getting louder than we normally would when we laugh. Um, it, it comes out without us realizing it sometimes. We're used to disrupting a social space with laughter. There's a really great essay by Julie Dawn Smith about Maggie Nichols, and uh, it, 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 she, talks, she theorizes laughter and queerness in interesting ways. Um, Laughter can be this kind of queering entity. You can change the energy in a space really strongly without even realizing it sometimes by laughing. So by tapping into that, that thing that we're all used to doing, um, which is uh, very dynamic vocally, um, it, it really invites people to realize, oh, what, I already do this, right? So, you know, I don't need to be shy about it. Right. Now, why do you think it might be important that people... Um expand the things that they do with their voice and the sounds that they make? Um, because it's fun, because it's pleasurable, and because it's something that's kind of taken away from us so that the policing aspect comes in. Um, it's not, well, I, it is important. I think, I think all the sort of um, dynamisms we become a part of are important because they inform our other actions. They get into our other actions. Everything um, we do teaches us uh, what to do after we do that thing. Um, and I think uh, going into a space where we really own our voice and really feel like you know, the full range of potential is something that we can tap into, um, I think that informs our other actions. I mean, so I think it's political on some level. Um, so that's, that's where I see the importance. Yeah. Um I wonder if uh, there are a lot of emotions, sort of personal emotions that come up when you're realizing all the shapes you can make with your mouth and things. And, mm-hmm. and really, as you said, I thought in the in the performance, as you said, it reminds you of early times of being scolded for mm. making sorts of sounds and you feel exposed and ashamed. Mm-hmm. I felt that way a little bit doing that. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, you could. It, it was in a way a, a safer space to explore those boundaries of, um, you know, body regulation, um, and you know, becoming a, a speaking subject sort of thing and mastering your your body and all these things. That you know, facing those fears, facing those limits, in kind of a safer space, could be could be a neat way of, of opening up like courage to to be a, a more uh, assured speaker and, and um, person in general, comfortable with your, with your body and the sound that it makes and what it does mm. outside. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I'm, uh, one of the things that happened this year in my research is I'm sort of finding um, slight overlaps between people who teach unconventional uh, vocal performance 
and people who uh, are like voice coaches for people that want to who need to do public speaking in their job and that sort of thing. There's there's these books that have like essays by both of those kinds of people, and sometimes sometimes people are, are both, or at least they talk to one another. Or so. <laughs> there's yeah, right. there's some some overlap there. So, so maybe I've got a, a good paying career ahead of me. Right, you know. right. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the you too can own your voice. There's actually a voice called or a book called Winning with Your Voice oh, that I was yes. looking at earlier. So that's actually interesting too. The, how the politics of speech become competitive and become um, you know subject to the sort of logic of capitalism. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, vocal improvisations are uh, more challenging, sort of politically, than other sorts of improvisations? Um, you're really putting me on the spot there with that question. Uh, Just because our voice is so much used in regular life. In well, the, that's that's the way I'd approach the question. Um, I don't want to necessarily say yes because I want to leave. I would want to leave that open. But I think that aspect is important. The fact that we all have this body, um, and I think that when audiences are seeing someone with an instrument that's that's a, almost a mediating entity that thing in between um the voice when we see a, a vocalist in performance it's it's almost like we're seeing this or we we feel like we're seeing their inner subjectivity and there's always i mean scientists uh recently have absolutely proved that we're hardwired for empathy there's this whole mirror neuron notion right yeah. um so i think when we see a vocalist um making the kinds of sounds that the unconventional vocalists that i'm interested in make not only is the transformation of their body at issue in the performance, the transformation of the audience's body is at issue as well. There's a kind of intersubjective relation that goes on because, you know, if, if there's a saxophone in the middle, maybe that wouldn't happen because maybe the audience has never picked up a saxophone, right? They, there's a mediating entity that shuts down to some degree or alters to some degree the intersubjective relation that's going on. So I actually kind of think in a lot of cases there is sort of a little bit more at stake sometimes. Mm -hmm. Not universally, but. that we did on the final day at the Sound Symposium. listening to is an alternation between sound painting and the unpitched singing techniques, but with instruments. So now there are voices and instruments responding to the gestural suggestions of either Chris Tinelli or Angus as 
were you, what I would do while listening is try to imagine what the gestures are that the conductor is doing that are producing these sounds. I would also try to think about whether you're more uncomfortable with the vocal improvising or the instrumental improvising. Why? for are recognizable musical tropes. Are there any playing styles that you recognize? In a sense, there really shouldn't be if we're trying to come up with something new without importing inherited musical biases. But how far can you leave those things behind, really? We all grew up in music, one way or another. Our world is full of music. Music is imprinted in our being. try to stop hearing anything else. All of the people at the music camp, which, by the way, was officially called a summer institute, 
We're studying the ingredients that go into a live, fresh performance in one way or another. But not everyone was a seasoned performer in their own right. Despite this, we all got up on stage and made music, danced, shrieked, and sang together. How did we gather the courage to do this? I spoke with one of the Institute members, Jason Cullimore, about this. He's a composer and a PhD student in adaptive music at the University of Regina. In this conversation, he explains using evolutionary theory how being in a group can help us do things that we would otherwise be too shy to do. And you said that uh, pe- you know people are willing to do things they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do mm-hmm. when they're in a group situation. Correct. So why why is that? Well, uh, there's many theories about how uh, groups work and group dynamics work. Um, I like to look at it as uh, uh, from an evolutionary viewpoint. Um, we have this concept called diffusion of responsibility. I think a lot of people are familiar with it. It's the idea that uh, when you're in a group, you would do things that you normally wouldn't do if you're on your own. And at this uh, institute that we've been attending, uh, a lot of people have been trying to do new things like acting or uh, singing and dancing, things I know I've never done that. And if I had to get up on stage on my own and do that, uh, I probably couldn't. It would be almost uh, traumatizing for me because I'm a little bit shy. But when you have a whole group of people, like there's about 20 of us in the class and we're all doing it, somehow I and other shy people can get get uh, onto the stage and do these things that we normally wouldn't do. And we actually just had a performance this afternoon in front of the public and I surprised myself by actually enjoying the process. But uh, where does this come from? Why could I do that and why could many of the people in the group do that uh, whereas if they were asked to do that on their own, they couldn't. So this is the concept of diffu- diffusion of responsibility. The idea is that uh, you do it because other people are doing it. When other people um, are engaged in an activity, somehow we feel more comfortable doing it. And I think the reason goes to the fact that uh, we feel less responsibility personally for the uh, consequences of that event. So. Uh, where could that come from? And that is the question. You know, why, why do humans feel this sense of less responsibility? After all, even if you're in a mob, you're still acting of your, of your own morality and your own ethical codes. And if you do something as part of a mob, like we've seen the riots after certain sporting events and things, uh, people will do that and they will bear responsibility for it. But the question is, uh, they do that only in the context of a group. So I have, I, I would suggest there's an evolutionary answer to that question. Um, evolution uh, has acted on humans to allow us to try to make right choices, choices that are beneficial to us and beneficial to people who support us. Because it's a very, uh, especially in the past, it's a very uh, dangerous world. There's lots of opportunity, there's, there's food to be gathered, there's game to hunt, there's also dangers like predators to avoid and natural disasters to, uh, to uh, escape from. Um, and the fact is that when we're in groups, we're stronger. We're stronger as a group because when there's more people acting with common purpose, uh, they are a greater force than the same number of people acting individually. You can, you can take down a woolly mammoth with a group, but if you had uh, a group of 10 people, but if you had 10 people each who had to take down a woolly mammoth, they would not succeed. Mm-hmm. 
So back to the idea of diffusion of responsibility. Um, think about uh, a hunter who's going after a gazelle and they s they're, they're, they're intent on uh, going after the gazelle. Suddenly they see a rustling in the bushes and uh, they see a saber-toothed lion and they run away and they escape. They made a mistake. They didn't check the path ahead. Uh, they didn't uh, make sure that they were, were safe. They didn't do that, and it almost cost them their life. This is an example of the risks that people faced back then. We face different types of risks today, but it's all about risks. So this person has to feel something in their, in their mind, in their head, that make, punishes them. They have to feel a sense of guilt or of fear, which is their brain telling them, don't do that again. Uh, if they do it again, they may not be so lucky and get away. That's solo responsibility. That's your own responsibility, your own culpability for your own actions. Now, if you're in a group, as a group of 10 of you, and you're hunting that gazelle, and there's a saber-toothed lion in the bushes, you all get away, why would you feel less guilt? Why would you feel less, less anxiety or less, uh, less uh, concern about the event? Well, simply put, you weren't in as much... Simply put... Simply put, you weren't in as much danger because you had 10 people around you and you were all capable of probably fending off a saber-toothed tiger. So the, the, the idea is that when you're in a group, the group shares responsibility because the group is stronger and you don't want, and so anything you do that's bad, uh, if, if it's a mistake or an aggressive action, whatever it is, if, it, if, it's, if it's wrong, the whole group can defend themselves against consequences of that. So we internalize it less. We're stronger as a group. And the same thing happens when you're, when you're uh, doing something positive. You know, I'm a composer and I like to think in musical terms. If you're playing a piano recital and you're playing solo piano and you finish your piece and the, the crowd stands up in an ovation, that's all for you. That's, that's because of what you did there and you internalize it as, as that because it's your responsibility. When an orchestra uh, plays a piece, uh, they do an excellent job, they finish, the audience rises up and, uh, and gives an ovation. You could have played just as well as that pianist, but there were also 50 other people who were doing just the same thing. Um, so you diffuse the responsibility. You feel, well, I did well, but you don't feel quite that good. So what the brain is doing is it's increasing the degree of reward that it gives for good actions and the degree, the degree of guilt or, or, or negative emotions that you feel when you make a mistake uh, in proportion to the danger of the situation. If you find yourself routinely getting into dangerous situations on your own, the brain has evolved to try and prevent that by, by putting you in this, in this negative valenced mood state. It's not uh, so much a question of out of character or doing or, or being swept along with the crowd in directions that you, you would never would never occurred to you or against you know against your your disposition or your will, but that mm -hmm. you would maybe have wanted to do it anyway. Yeah. But the risk was too high on your own. Yes, that's a, that's a good explanation. If you're looking, the brain is always trying to predict what's going to happen next. And one of the things it uses in that calculation is the degree of support there are from the other people. In fact, this is one of the theories of why music evolved, um, was uh, to increase the social bonding between people so that they would work better as a team. How do you know you're in a group? Or how do you know that um, the other people are there to support you if, if, you, if 
can mess up. There's there's some theories of the evolutionary origins of music that speak directly to that question. So uh, if we look at our closest common ancestor with the chimpanzees, we believe that the uh, that ancestor was a chimpanzee like a primate, and that they had very small social groups, similar to the way modern chimpanzees have small social groups. And the way modern chimpanzees, and supposedly our uh, our closest uh, uh, common ancestor with the chimpanzee, reinforced those social bonds that allowed them to uh, act together in concert was uh, to groom one another. And for the chimpanzees, this is one chimpanzee saying without words to another, I've got your back. I'm going to be supporting you. I'm doing this because I have an emotional investment in you. I like you. So this is where we think human social bonds started way, you know, about six million years ago. But something happened in between those times. Six million years ago, um, six million years ago, uh, we had a common ancestor with the chimpanzees, but as, uh, as time went on, we diverged from the chimpanzees, both in terms of behavior and, you know, body structure, but also in terms of social structure. And the chimpanzee, while well, the chimpanzees maintained small social groups, humans did not. And when you get into the early hominids, and, and you find that the social groups become much larger. We're looking at dozens of individuals. Now, can you imagine if uh, dozens of individuals each had to groom one another one-to-one? -one? There wouldn't be enough time in the day. Even for a small group of chimpanzees, uh, it takes about... 30%, 40% of their time every day to groom one another to reinforce those social bonds. So humans had to find another way, and we used our voice. Our voice in this theory developed as a means of grooming one another, but instead of uh, grooming one another, uh, we would make vocalizations, ulations, you know, we would, we, would, we would communicate with one another, not on a one-to-one -one basis through, through this physical contact, but through listening to each other's voices. The voice contains information. Some of that information carried on in humans to become language. Some of that information carried on in humans in the form of music. Um, but at the root of music uh, is this idea that it is there as a means for us to share it. And we share it with each other, and that makes us feel closer to each other. I teach a class in the psychology of music uh, at the University of Regina. And I always uh, play a video of a soccer crowd um, chanting an anthem, because this is exactly what music has become to us. When you want your sports team to, uh, to succeed, uh, you don't, you don't yell, you know, please succeed, you sing, you know, any song that, uh, that is together. And the point is, it doesn't matter what song it is, it doesn't matter if it's a chant or an anthem or whatever, you sing that song and the person next to you is singing that song and the people all the way at the far end of the field are singing that song. You've got 60,000 people all singing a song and I guarantee you that during those, those moments when the whole crowd is singing that song, nobody's fighting with each other, everybody's feeling close to each other and the team on the field is feeling that. They're saying, everybody is for me, I'm part of this group and now I can go on and win the game. And that's why uh, teams always win, almost always win more home games than away games. It's because the crowd is there and one of the tools the crowd uses to communicate their support is through music. And that goes all the way back to when music was first created. I mean, it's important to study evolution because it doesn't just tell you the way things were, it also tells you the way things are.
Thank you so much for listening. We're almost at the end of our show. So I'm going to bring you out with a few selections from the rest of the performance. If you'd like to find out more about the Summer Institute, the Sound Symposium, or the International Institute for Critical Studies and Improvisation, then go to improvcommunity.ca. I'm Rachel Elliott. Thank you for listening to Sound It Out on CFRU, Guelph's campus radio station.
Thank you. 